Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté here with Max Blumenthal. He is the senior editor of The Gray Zone, author of many books, including his latest, The Management of Savagery. Max, welcome. A major theme of your work, of your new book, is the Syria proxy war. You just returned from Syria for the first time. Talk to us about what you found there. Well, there were a number of impressions that were sort of new to me or uh, were striking. And, you know, I, I, underst I, I understood the basic outlines and, and a lot of the details of the conflict in Syria. Um, and my book focused especially on, you know, the Washington's role in fueling the conflict and then the repercussions in the West. But what I came to understand from being in Damascus and really from spending time pretty much on my own after attending a labor conference for two days, um, which was overseen by the government, which gave me access to this territory, to an area that is pretty much off limits to most Americans and most people in the West who just can't get visas, and the government's very paranoid uh, about that. Um, you know, just having, getting, being able to spend several days in the old city in Damascus, um, staying in a Christian area called Bab Sharki, at the easternmost gate of Damascus's old city, so sort of facing towards uh, what are considered the eastern suburbs of Damascus, um, being in this historic area, um, which is, you know, very culturally liberal. People go out and there's a big bar scene at night. This is where Christians fled Roman persecution. It's where Saul became Saint Paul. There are, you know, Greek Orthodox churches that are hundreds and hundreds of years old there that you know, when, you, when I was able to walk out across the highway outside the Eastern Gate and get into those neighborhoods, which are very sensitive areas, uh, there are military checkpoints around them, and you know, when they saw a foreigner attempt to go in, I was turned away initially, but going in with several colleagues and friends, getting into what's known as District 11, which, is, which behind it is Ghouta, the area controlled by the Saudi-backed Wahhabi militia, Jaysh al-Islam, I came to understand what the Syrian loyalist population or what people in Damascus were actually facing for several years. Um, and it would be kind of equivalent to uh, people in Washington, D.C. having to face a Ku Klux Klan in Bethesda or some kind of extremist group which has provided heavy weapons by a foreign power. You know, went into that area, District 11, you can see Ghouta behind it, it's completely in ruins. Walked through a graveyard of public buses which had been destroyed in the war and met someone who lived for four months under the control of Jaysh al-Islam, a guy who works in a sandwich shop named Shadi. And he described to us what he called living in a prison, uh, basically living in hell. He called it a horror show. Uh, people being executed in the street. He said they didn't even cut our hands for punishment. They would shoot people in the street for violating their harsh theocratic religious law. He described women being disappeared, uh, raped. Um, he said that when the government began to attempt to liberate this area, uh, over 100 people were rounded up and put in a horse stable and were used as basically collateral to negotiate Jaysh al-Islam's way out. You know, he described Jaysh al-Islam attempting to attack and overtake the old city by um, coming up through sewers. And this is a group that was trained by Pakistani special forces and funded by Saudi Arabia's, uh, you know, armed through by the personal accounts of Prince Bandar bin Sultan. So, the, you know, they had pretty good weaponry and advanced training. And they were led by someone who's dead now, Zahran Alush, who is the son of a fanatical Wahhabi preacher 
who had pledged to cleanse Syria of religious minorities, who had said, we will step on your heads and crush you. And this is referring to Alawites, to the Shia population, and to the Christians who are living just across the highway in this historic area. And you know, you would talk to people inside the old city about the mortar attacks that they faced on a daily basis, about people playing dominoes who were just hit by a mortar and their bodies would explode everywhere. We'd scarcely heard these stories in Western media, if at all. And that was because Jaysh al-Islam was being promoted in Washington, as I describe in the management of savagery, by people like the neoconservative pundit Eli Lake, who wrote in Bloomberg that Sahran Alush is a friend of Israel. Uh, Mona Alam, a regime change lobbyist at the Atlantic Council, wrote that Zahran Alush is offering a democratic alternative to the Syrian government. There was a group of writers and intellectuals and academics who comprise what we know of as the regime change online echo chamber who issued an open letter in the New York Review of Books demanding that the U.S. military provide protection to Jaysh al-Islam when these areas were being liberated. And meanwhile, common people there, Muslims and Christians alike, were living through hell. They were living through absolute hell. So what I witnessed was the way most people inside Damascus understood what they went through for the last eight years, which is, they call it a war on terror. And we Americans are conditioned to think of that as this phony war where the U.S. goes and smashes up an Arab state and destroys everything, promotes sectarianism, but they were genuinely facing that. They don't talk about Jaysh al-Islam as a militia, as the opposition. They just say terrorists. That's rebels. the word. Yeah, they don't say the word rebels. They just say terrorists because they were terrorized on every level and this group reached so deep into Damascus that you really could imagine the Syrian flag which stands in the middle of the city being replaced with the black flag of the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda or some group like it, like Jaysh al-Islam. So there was an actual clash of civilizations that took place in Syria and it's not the racist orientalist clash of civilizations. Uh, as we understand it through Samuel Huntington or the Islamophobes like Daniel Pipes. It was a clash of civilizations between the austere, harsh, inhuman values of the Wahhabi monarchies of the Gulf and the vibrant, historic, pluralistic culture of the Arab Levant. And whether or not Syria is a dictatorship and a police state, and I wouldn't dispute that at all, the pluralistic culture of the Arab Levant managed to win and at a heavy price because you go for kilometers and kilometers through these areas in the eastern suburbs that were held by Jaysh al-Islam, held by the Al-Rahman Brigade, which was funded by Qatar, uh, Jabhat al-Nusra funded by Qatar, so many various 31 flavors of, you know, Wahhabi Contras. And they're all destroyed. It's all destroyed. And so this was, this was the price, but it was a price imposed on Syria from the outside and I was able to understand how Syrians, which we call, you know, the loyalist Syrians, uh, how, they, how they experienced this eight-year nightmare. Did you speak to any Syrians who maybe initially welcomed the rebels, but then had their impression changed after having to live under them and live, live under their rule? Yeah, I mean, Shadi, who really, just like a working guy, common guy who lived in the area that was occupied by the so-called rebels, um, said that, you know, initially people, many people did welcome them in because this is a Sunni working class population. They have an Alawite government. Sectarianism was being promoted to them through networks like Al Jazeera Arabic, Al Arabiya. 
um, and they thought, you know, this is the true Islam, this is what we want. And then after a few months, they realized, we don't want this. We don't want our food stolen and sold back to us at elevated prices. We don't want our homes looted. We don't want uh, our people being kidnapped. We don't want to live in what he described. This just working class guy just met on the street, what he described as a little Saudi Arabia. They decided they didn't want that eventually. And so you have these scenes of the government attempting to arrange humanitarian corridors for the population that became trapped under the control of these militias to escape and the militias sniping at them. Because once they lose the civilian population, then they lose all the collateral that they needed to negotiate the reconciliation deals, which got them onto the green buses into Idlib, which is now basically a warehouse for all of the different Takfiri extremist groups that fought all around Syria. And it's the last bastion of the so-called opposition. So that was how, you know, average people understood it, but you know, we also spent a lot of time with an uh, independent businessman, who's a, a Syrian-American, who has no connection to the government. And this is someone who, like many of his friends, got excited about the protests in 2011. And he described them as reformist protests. He said that the government was caught on its back foot and they were begging them for the protests to stop and they were offering any reform. And he actually participated in these committees, which helped fund the protests, provide them with protest material. But then he said once the, the soon the protests became militarized, they became sectarianized, and he realized this is not about reform. This is not about expanding um, political space in the country. This is about destroying an entire state and turning our country into Libya. And so he's, you know, someone who would not be in any way a supporter of the Ba'ath Party or the Assad family but someone who despises what the armed opposition did to Syria um, and what they could have done is something that struck terror in his heart, just like so many people uh, we spoke to who spent their time in the country. I mean, he didn't leave the country like a lot of the other, uh, the rest of the business class. So now the proxy war is over, except for Idlib, as you mentioned, which by the way, the, uh, a recent U.S. envoy to the Middle East, Brett McGurk, called it the largest al-Qaeda safe haven in the world. Look, Idlib province is the largest al-Qaeda safe haven since 9-11, tied directly to Ayman al-Sahiri. This is a huge problem. It's been a problem for some time. But in the rest of the country, life is proceeding back to normal. But now, you've talked about Syria being in a new phase, where now it's under an economic war led by the U.S. Yeah, you know, it, it was really important for me to see um, life as you know, normal life in Syria, to go to uh, Blue Don, which is a sort of um, an area a lot of Syrians go in the, in the mountains for outside of Damascus uh, for leisure, for enjoyment, to sit in a restaurant. And you can see um, the Lebanese border and you can see the town of Zabadani, which was the first area occupied by insurgents who I think were getting money from uh, Rafiq and Saad Hariri's future party in Lebanon. And there was one of the harshest battles waged by the Syrian army in Hezbollah to retake that. And you can also see um, nearby is Medaya, which, you know, we were told was the subject of a starvation siege by the Syrian government. But when the people came out of the town, they said, actually, we're being starved by al-Nusra, the local al-Qaeda affiliate, and Arar al-Sham, the Turkish card in the Syrian conflict. They would stole all our food and then sold it back to us at high prices and stole all the aid. So... Now people are enjoying themselves in this area. 
Um, I was told that all over Madaya there are Assad posters on people's homes. Um, you know, people were singing in their cars on the way back. You would just see families singing and people in restaurants smoking shisha and just having a good time. Fireworks were going off. It was the night of the Feast of the Cross, which is a Christian holiday, and so people were firing weapons in the air and shooting off fireworks. And I think, you know, just me showing that inspired this kind of paroxysm of outrage among the regime change echo chamber. Like, how dare I show people enjoying themselves in what we're told is Assad territory? So that was really important for me. But people are also facing, as you mentioned, uh, an unprecedented economic war. The U.S. Is, has imposed some of the harshest sanctions in the world on Syria and it really does represent an economic embargo. The sanctions by 2016 had already caused a 70% contraction in Syria's manufacturing base uh, and made vital medicines and replacement parts in Syrian hospitals, which are some of the best, they've had some of the best medical system, one of the best medical systems in the um, Middle East. Uh, they're, they're making those parts hard to replace. So for example, dialysis machines are um, harder to replace. Basically what people emphasized to me, particularly in the business community, was that the sanctions are hurting everyone except the Assad family and his inner circle businessmen like Rami Makhlouf, who are totally tied in with the government. And so they're not scathing the government in any way. It's simply collective punishment. It is what the Iranian foreign minister Javad Zarif has accurately called financial terrorism because they're terrorizing a civilian population in order to produce a change at the top of their government, and it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And making a country suffer, essentially because it defeated a foreign proxy war that wanted to impose, or that would have imposed, jihadist rule on the country. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the West are sore losers. They're not really good sports here. Uh, what would be the right thing to do is to help them rebuild, to rebuild those eastern suburbs, which would allow refugees to continue to come back. But instead, refugees are being used as a political weapon uh, by NATO and by Turkey. And we're imposing these, or our government is imposing these sanctions, which is making life miserable for people regardless of their political affiliation. And in any situation like this, it helps the government blame. I mean, corruption is at a high, extremely high levels, partly because of the war. The war enriched a lot of people. But you can always displace blame for that on the West when they impose sanctions that don't allow you to, for example, have heating oil in the winter. Many Syrians went without heat in their homes last winter because of these sanctions. So again, people who've been cheering for regime change for years, they always had the excuse that it would pr promote democracy. Even, you know, when the behavior and the nature of the armed opposition flew in the face of anything that could be remotely considered democratic, but they always had that excuse. Now they don't really have that excuse anymore. They're simply sitting idly by as sanctions ruin the lives of all Syrians who live in Syria uh, and prevent refugees from coming home. Um, I think, you know, those people are ghouls. And the attacks that we faced while we were there are really the background noise to these sanctions because they want to attack and intimidate people from the West who want to have cultural and personal contact with Syrians in the area where most Syrians live. 
I went there and I took that opportunity to have contact with them because I'll take any reasonable opportunity to break the media blockade in countries targeted with regime change and to show my fellow citizens what's on the other side of the corporate media and the U.S. national security state's information war. And we appreciate you doing it. And stay tuned to The Gray Zone for more of Max's reporting from Syria. Max Blumenthal, senior editor of The Gray Zone, author of the book, The Management of Savagery. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Aaron.